and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is this week's co-host, Stefan Allen. Hello. Today, we are discussing the 2023 Doctor Who specials, marking the welcome but short-lived return of David Tennant, Catherine Tate, and showrunner Russell T. Davies, who originally rebooted the show in 2005. Airing in December, these episodes showcase three different styles of Doctor Who story, ending with David Tennant regenerating into the new Doctor played by Shuti Gatwa, who makes his solo debut on Christmas Day. Um, So this episode will undoubtedly be coming out after Christmas, but it's being recorded before Christmas, so we haven't seen the Christmas special yet. I'm working under the assumption that I'm going to absolutely love it because I, based on 10 minutes of Shuti Gatwa's screen time, I was passionately in love with him already. I just, I'm so excited for Doctor Who for the first time in many years. (laughs) I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah, he's absolutely wonderful. And I really loved these episodes, but it's funny It's the 60th anniversary, and so I guess these episodes, as fresh and exciting as they are, are still a bit of a celebration of the past. And I think people just can't wait to see new, 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 just new cast, new everything. Like I said, it's kind of showcasing these three different kinds of stories. So like the first one is like a classic family adventure where the Doctor shows up and instead of engaging with like a new group of, you know, present day humans, he's reunited with the family of Donna Noble, who was his companion for a season about like 15 years ago. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) a long time ago. But Catherine Tate's Donna Noble is a beloved former companion um but she had like an ending that a lot of people weren't happy with where she basically had all her memories wiped of the doctor and if she ever remembers him she'll die so there's this big kind of sword of damocles hanging over this potential reunion but of course as we can all guess she does not die after meeting and then reuniting with doctor and then we get two more adventures until their kind of dual finale. We're just going to be discussing spoilers all the way through this, because I feel like if you care about Doctor Who by this point, you're going to have watched it. But yeah, the second episode is much more in the horror vein, and it's really fun because it's just a two-hander that allows David Tennant and Catherine Tate to bounce off each other. They're really good friends. They've done stage work together. They're just amazing partners. And then the third one is this sort of classic, epic Doctor against a supervillain face-off kind of thing, which many people have compared to the 2012 Avengers film, which we will be discussing later. Um, But that kind of culminates in your classic regeneration, but it gave Shuti Gatwa a lot more screen time than we're used to seeing in a regeneration episode, because often it just sort of ends with the death and then the resurrection takes place later. But yeah, like, this is going to be a very over-invested, over-invested episode, isn't it, Stefan? Because as we mentioned in our last episode together, you are, like, one of the world's premier Doctor Who stands. Well, it's funny, yeah. I mean, such is the nature of this show, and so f- aggressively overinvested its fan base is that I think about Doctor Who every single day of my life. I've lived with it for such a long time. It's not just how much I've watched, it's how many of the books and comics I've read. It's it's like how much behind the scenes stuff I've consumed. The fact that as we mentioned last time as well, you've been in Doctor Who. (laughs) Your friends all work for (laughs) Doctor Who. (laughs) Yeah, but a lot of that's just living in Wales more than anything. And yet, actually, still, there are people more invested than I. Like, I wouldn't even go as far as to say that I am a particularly extreme... You know, I I feel like I'm probably in the top 1% of fans, but 
or you know people can go deeper like it's astonishing the 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 level of investment it's one of those things where there is so much doctor who and it's all so different you know this, this is a show that's been running for 60 years there's so many different versions of it and different styles and approaches that you can have two people who love this with all their hearts but with very different opinions of what it is and should be when you look back at like the really old ones it literally takes place in a format that i think would be completely alien to the majority of our listeners who are like american millennials i assume <laughs> because the original yeah. doctor who's were mini serials so you'd have like what like three or four episodes that were a single story and that's how they were released yeah that's it it would be you would watch this weekly when it when it started it was on you know most of the year round and you'd get these 25 minute episodes in black and white in black and white, very theatrical. You know, the, a lot of the backdrops are just painted curtains. Part of what they've done as part of the 60th is all of this back catalogue is on iPlayer now, for the most part. There's some episodes that are missing from the archive. Uh, there's there's a couple of episodes they couldn't get the rights to. But pretty much all of it is now freely available to anyone in the UK with uh, with access to iPlayer. All 60 years are there. And it's wild when you watch these early ones from, you know, 63, 64, to think, this is only three years before Star Trek, but British television was, you know, really, really in its infancy. The Like, British television has never had the money that American television has had. And that it's just, when you go back that far in time, you know, they were filming these practically as live, you know. An, an episode of Doctor Who would be filmed in one or two shots, so, you know, errors are left, you know, that people might fluff their lines and that's just, okay, that's not a big enough mistake to go again, so that just makes the cuts. They would rehearse on a Tuesday and record on a Friday. <laughs> it's a really, really different way. I love it. Whereas this is very glossy and expensive and it does have that Disney crossover money now, which is controversial because it means that, like, Disney has this sort of not kind of partial ownership, but it does have this potential sort of future oversight over something which previously was a BBC product. And a lot of people were cracking jokes about like when the new episode, the first new episode aired, it's like very overtly political in quite a corny way in terms of representation among the main cast. So, you know, there's Catherine Tate, Donna Noble's daughter is trans and this is like a in the forefront of the episode and like there's a recurring disabled character her role kind of culminates in the TARDIS having a wheelchair ramp for the first time and that sort of thing. And it's all introduced in this way that is extremely kind of straightforward and accessible in a way that I think some people just found quite cheesy, but also is necessary if you are playing to the broadest possible audience, which I think is sometimes misunderstood by overseas viewers because it's like I think it's hard to grasp how much Doctor Who is like the number one show in the UK because to a lot of sci-fi fans overseas it's seen more as like a geek culture property that's now a franchise that you can watch on Disney Plus and it's like no this is James Bond but TV in the UK so like whenever anything happens it becomes news in Doctor Who and I think Russell T Davies who has spent the past you know over a decade doing much more mature, generally queer-centric programming that is a lot edgier and more sophisticated than Doctor Who. He knows how to kind of code switch to a different audience that it's like your conservative grandmother and an eight-year-old in the same room watching the show, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's it. I've been keeping an eye on the ratings for this show and there are 
so far only three TV shows in the UK all year dramas anyway that were watched by more people than than these episodes of Doctor Who probably Doctor Who's going to overtake a lot of that as well because such is the nature of this kind of long tail viewing a lot of people watch on catch up and the Christmas special is a cultural institution yes and the only shows that beat it are shows like Unforgotten Death in Paradise Basically, crime procedural yeah. dramas. I mean, pretty but, much know, everything yeah. on British television is someone solving a murder, which is why yeah. <laughs> why I don't watch very much. I do watch all those shows. I love those shows. But yeah, th- this is, you know, my mother watched this. My best friend's children watched this. It's such a big thing. And yeah, having this incredibly accessible and mainstream thing. And, you know, I, I'm very plugged into discourse around trans issues and representation. So it's sort of, it's almost a shock to the system to see something you know, so simple, but also so unapologetically just positive and daft. It is a family show. You know, it's in that Pixar mould. So, although it can be surprisingly dark and adult in places, it is still at heart a show that has to be understood and enjoyed by children. Like you were saying about the ratings, this revamp is definitely a sort of like, we need to get people watching again because... The general impression I got is that the last era, the most recent era of Doctor Who, is the Jodie Whittaker Doctor. So we had the first female Doctor and showrunner Chris Chibnall. And this was actually the point where I stopped watching and the point where pretty much everyone I know stopped watching, which is absolutely no comment on Jodie Whittaker herself, who was so good. Like, from her first episode, I watched, like, most of the first season and I was like, she's just amazing. She's so charming. She's an amazing actress. She also has this great personal charisma that's kind of necessary when you are playing a character with this level of high profile because you're basically going to be approached by children on the street for the rest of your life. (laughs) But Chris Chibnall's writing and kind of showrunner style was just so uninteresting to me. I was just, I just turned off, which is kind of partly, I think, like a lot of people, I was sort of beaten down by the Stephen Moffat era, which had different problems. I had a lot of issues with his politics and his his style of storytelling, which was very kind of bombastic. I didn't really gel with him. And obviously before that was Russell T Davies, who I was just adored, as did everyone I know. But this is a bit of a kind of nostalgia play in the same way that we've seen with a lot of other franchises, bringing back David Tennant, who is probably the most beloved doctor of like the modern era, and Catherine Tate, who is like obviously up for it because they're pals. It is interesting, though, that some of that is an illusion, that narrative of, oh, people dropped off during the Jodie Whittaker era. Like, the show definitely, ratings did go down over the years, but that's true of all television. Doctor Who was still a massive, massive hit. There are two periods where the ratings took, you know, kind of a bit of a dip and were less stable. And one is during the Capaldi run. Uh, Peter Capaldi, a wonderful actor. But yeah, like, people didn't gel with his Doctor especially. I mean, there were some real duds in that era. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Well, I think think Capaldi and Whittaker suffered from the same thing, which is a weak start. I think their first seasons are their worst. But even so, you know, we talk about this dip. It's still a massive, massive show. It's huge. And the BBC had complete faith in those teams. They are, you know, Stephen Moffat stayed on significantly longer than he'd intended because the BBC kept begging him to, basically. Which is depressing to consider. (laughs) (laughs) And they did the same thing with Chris Chibnall. Chris Chibnall stayed on for one extra special compared to what he was down to do. 
but you know his his sons were going through GCSEs and basically he was like right I am going now so I think as much as there can be this discourse around it going, oh, you know, they, I bet they couldn't wait to get rid of Chibnall. No, that's not true, because this is a very complicated, difficult show to make. And the number of people in the UK able to make it and willing to make it is quite small. So there's lots of rumours of people that they approached after Chibnall to take it over, including quite big people who sort of turned it down. Ultimately, the reason Dave, Russell T. Davis is back is not because this was a failing show, let's go back to basics, but because he wanted to and is the biggest... Well, I definitely kind of <laughs> viewed it as, like, old reliable mm. and in a way where it's like, I do sort of trust that his writing also has evolved over the years. Because, like, although I obviously have a lot of affection for the Russell T. Davies era, which mostly aired when I was a teenager, like, I was obsessed with Billy Piper as a child, so I was, like, absolutely thrilled from day one of Rose Tyler. But, um... Obviously, he's not without flaws, both in the yeah. old vintage era, where some elements are a bit dated, and in these episodes, where I was like, quite frequently, I was like, oh god, cringe. But I was still <laughs> like, I feel like I can trust him to know how to write a Doctor Who episode, which is quite a specific style of storytelling. Yeah, and also, you know, in the UK, because there's less money... An executive producer of a show like this, uh, you know, you don't have like a lead writer who's only writing. The lead writer will also be an executive producer who has a deep, deep knowledge of how to make television. Um, It's really interesting that the BBC have put a lot of scripts online of Doctor Who. And if you go through any of these scripts, Moffat and Chibnall and Davis know so much about the specific costs, the specific way that special effects work. You know, there'll be specific lines in the script about not just, hey, here's my story, go and make it, but they know exactly how many spacesuits the budget can afford, uh, how many effects shots they, they have in the can. That's the barrier to entry to running a show like this. You can be the best writer in the world. You need to be able to make television. Which is so funny considering some of the stories I've heard about difficult or actively nightmarish showrunners in America because there are so many showrunners who are both like monsters, which I'm sure we have here as well, obviously, but also are just like constantly like $30 million over budget, including the Game of Thrones showrunners and stuff like that who were first timers. And it's like, imagine if like the UK started exporting more showrunners over to the US like that, they would be like, wow, these guys really understand how to uh, not spend millions of dollars on some random garbage. And that's it. And it's because so much of the buck stops with you as the showrunner. The story I always think about is how in 2006, episode 11 of 2006 wasn't going to have a big special effects monster in it in order to save money. But then that episode was written by a freelancer, uh, Matthew Graham, the creator of Life on Mars. And when the script came in, Davis looked at it and was like, oh, this needs a monster. So he had to look at other episodes and go okay, and cuts a space suit from, there's like a space story in that year where there's four space suits and he cuts it down to three and goes, we'll just redraft to make space. <laughs> and, you know, that that is the job of the showrunner is really remarkable, I think. I mean, with these new episodes, I was just so delighted by the different types of visual effects that were going on here because on the one hand, there was an absolutely gorgeous puppet in the first episode And in the second episode, they had these amazing body horror sequences with prosthetic arms that were like 15 feet long that they had modelled off 
Catherine Tate and David Tennant's body doing kind of 3D modeling and then elongating it. And I was like, oh, it's not CGI. It's amazing. It's so interesting to like see these like really fucked up prosthetics. But then also the second and third episodes are both literally corridors, <laughs> which are the staple yeah. of Doctor Who and vintage Star Trek because you could just run up and down the same corridor on a budget forever. And it was like they found new ways to do corridors because episode two is set entirely in this spaceship, which is quite clearly the two lead actors running around in front of basically a green screen and a floor, which is sort of changing a little bit in the background. And then episode three is they're up against this villain played by Neil Patrick Harris called the Toymaker, who has this kind of multi-dimensional house that's got all these vintage wooden corridors, which I presume are maybe like an actual location, but they're just once again running up and down corridors for like 10 minutes of that episode. And it's like, ah, yes, they've, they're really innovating on a classic theme here. <laughs> Yeah, because one of the things that's weird about Doctor Who compared to other action-adventure shows and movies in this genre is that the Doctor's kind of defined by a refusal to use guns. He's not a violent person. And that doesn't mean there aren't occasionally episodes where he'll find some ironic way of... The show can be violent, there can be sort of murderous results to things. But for the most part, this is a character who tries to solve problems by talking about them and by being clever. And occasionally by rattling off some technobabble and rewiring a computer or whatever. But what it means is an action sequence in Doctor Who is usually running. And so corridors are very, yeah, they have such a place in this show. And there was just some amazing (laughs) physicality from David Tennant in this. Because obviously, David Tennant is now like 50 or whatever, but he has this incredibly kind of skinny physique that he knows how to use on camera, of course, because he is one of our great professionals and is sort of springing around and running. And it was just really funny to see him and Donna like running together because he knows how to run in a way that looks really fast, even though they're both technically running at the same speed. Whereas Catherine Tate does not look like she's running fast. And I realised after a couple of episodes, it's like, oh, it's because because she's not allowed to do the universal covering your boobs with your arms run, which is, I think, familiar <laughs> to so many people, but you can't do on television. So she's having to like figure out how to run in a way that doesn't uh, get too undignified. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, at at some point, Doctor Who's going to have to get with the the program and make sure that its companions are allowed sports bras. <laughs> but yeah, on that note, we should actually discuss these episodes. Um, we don't want this ep- this episode to end up being like three hours long, but I think we should talk about each one individually. The first one being the Star Beast, which features this tremendous creature, which um was instantly beloved by audiences across the world. I was just delighted that the show found various different ways over these three episodes to just be like, would you like to meet a new kind of an evil baby Yoda? And that's what yeah, we had that's a good point. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah Doctor's got this big history of doing cutesy creatures. And, um, you know, I remember 2008, you know, the last time we had Tennant and Tate uh, had creatures called the Adipose that were incredibly cute. So I sort of knew when people were anticipating what Russell T. Davis would do, I think people forget about this side of his work, which, you know, it can be incredibly silly. So this creature is called the Meep, and it's sort of deliberately, like, sickly sweet. Because, again, we'll talk spoilers, there is a twist halfway through where it turns out this Meep is evil. So there's actually two different puppets, as it turns out. The second one is the Meep looking all evil with sort of jagged teeth and sort of evil eyebrows. The story is based on a comic from 1980, and it's it's a surprisingly faithful adaptation, other than the fact that it's kind of been adapted to use 
this cast rather than uh, the Tom Baker Doctor that was in the the comic. The creature in the comic was designed and illustrated by Dave Gibbons of Watchmen fame. It was very funny to see Dave Gibbons in the credits to this episode, so presumably he did get like a little bit of a uh, pay for this. <laughs> yeah, well, so so he and Pat Mills, the writer of the comic, have talked about you know how much they loved, how much respect they were paid. There's a behind-the-scenes show called Doctor Who Unleashed, so if you want an hour of behind-the-scenes content on every one of these episodes that's you know that's right there and they got gibbons and mills to come on set to kind of see their creations in action and interviewed them a little bit and that's just really lovely and heartwarming because yeah like god knows very rarely has gibbons been treated well in adaptations of his work yeah, I mean this episode <laughs> I was I was enjoying the hell out of this. This was the one I think that I found maybe the corniest. My criticism of the third episode is that I just think they should have just deleted all the parts that had unit in them, but that might just be because I just don't really like unit and I'm always like these guys are sort of jackbooted militaristic thugs, which the show kind of semi-acknowledges and then semi-doesn't, depending on which episode is which. But this first one, like I said, has this classic sort of family format where the Doctor runs back into Donna Noble and her mother. The other key character who wasn't really present was her grandfather, who is this beloved figure during that season, uh, but the actress passed away. So he does have sort of a brief cameo role in the episode, but then he doesn't he doesn't reappear later. Um, that's Wilfred. But the other characters are... Donna's husband, who is a comically non-existent, supportive lad, and uh, her teenage daughter, who's the character who kind of comes into contact with the Meep and hides this alien in the the, the garden shed. So it's this very sort of kid-friendly format in a very enjoyable way. And it sort of culminates in a confrontation where they realise that the Meep's bad and they have to defeat the Meep. Like, I don't feel the need to do an in-depth uh, recap, because if you've watched it, you'll know, and if you don't watch it, you can go watch it. But um. I just really enjoyed the aliens in this because the Meep is just so funny. The transformation from being like a comically adorable like fluff ball into this complete megalomaniac supervillain was hilarious to me. And there's also these alien army cops that are chasing it. They just are clearly kind of stuntmen in these very prosthetic heavy costumes that were so kind of vintage Doctor Who in a way that really cracked me up. Yeah, I didn't expect the the Roth Warriors, I think they're called. I didn't expect them to look quite as true to the comics as they, they were are. They were so like it's funny. <laughs> I was just like, this is this is old school, like late 20th century material. It ends in Donna getting her memories back and like her daughter Rose is like part of the reason why they managed to defeat the Meep and bring back Donna's memories and stuff because they've got like all this energy from the, from the TARDIS or whatever. But yeah, I think like Rose was like a really popular character, um, but it feels like maybe a bit of a missed opportunity to not make her more of a companion. There was also quite a lot of controversy over the fact that she's trans was introduced during a dead naming scene. And obviously like Russell T Davies was aware that this would be controversial. So he actually kind of pre-recorded a segment where he was talking with a trans author from the UK about the ethics of like using dead naming in a work of fiction. Um, and I ultimately was just like, it feels like you could have just done this in a way that didn't involve that because it's just something that so many people find upsetting and unnecessary. Like, it's not really a necessary way to introduce this character. But, like, it's not like he's doing it from a clueless perspective. So I guess we've just got to see how this pans out over future episodes in the next season. Although I don't know if Rose is actually going to come back at all. But, like, yeah. I believe the actress is slated to return. Okay. So I imagine, yeah. You know, Russell T. Davis has a long history of writing specifically about his experience as a gay man 
And even there, his work has been controversial among other gay men. I mean, you know, speaking as a queer man myself, I love it. I think it's brilliant. For context, he is the creator of the original Queer as Folk. And he also obviously created Torchwood, which is like the, the gay Doctor Who spin-off. <laughs> and, um, and then more recently, he did Cucumber and A Very English Scandal, and then Years and Years, and then most recently, It's a Sin, which I've not actually watched, but it was like very critically acclaimed. And everyone I knew who watched it was just like, this is a masterpiece. But also like, it's, it's a kind of 80s and 90s drama about gay men and their friends during the HIV crisis. He does touch upon quite edgy subject matter sometimes, and that's always going to be divisive. Yeah, it's uh, it's a sin is brilliant, but it is unflinching and isn't always. You don't expect a drama about HIV to be an easy watch, but it's interesting the ways in which it can be difficult sometimes. In that, you know, sometimes these characters do things that are really painful to what you know. He writes very flawed characters and doesn't flinch away from the uglier side of humanity. That is something that he applies to identities other than his own. So, you know, you can be charitable and say, well, you know, this is how he writes and that's consistent. Yeah. Or... I think quite a lot of people are like, you're on thin ice as the person in charge of the first black doctor. Yeah. Because his track record is far from perfect. <laughs> it's also interesting how he's talked about this over the years where queer as folk... There's sort of a famous anecdote where there was uh, a woman, a black woman, someone who works in television but is a big, like, advocate for for kind of racial representation at the time. She just literally walked out of the screening. Uh, she was like, oh, there's no people of colour in this. Gone. You know, this is back in the, in, what, 1997? Yeah, like late uh, 90s. But, you know, Davis goes and finds her later and goes, oh my god, I'm so sorry that my work offended you. She said, oh, it didn't offend me, I just found it boring. <laughs> if, the, if it's all white people. Yeah. <laughs> She just said, I just think you missed a trick. You missed an opportunity. You know, you could have made this work so much richer and more interesting by having people from different backgrounds and you chose not to. Fair enough. I'm not going to watch that. And, you know, he's told this anecdote as being, you know, a threshold moment of going, yes, part of what being a writer is, is representing other people's stories, not just your own. And therefore, the like you say, it means that sometimes he's on thin ice and has been criticised for people feel his work has fallen short of, of good representation. But like, it's definitely a thing that he wholeheartedly believes in. You know, he's also been massively praised for this as well, right? And of course, it creates work for actors who, like, Yasmin Finney as plays Rose is best known for Heartstopper now. She's in Heartstopper, which I haven't seen, but she was cast in this before Heartstopper had gone out, so she was cast in this on an audition. She wasn't she wasn't known to them before. So yeah, so there's always this, you know, thing. And Ruth Maidley who, who plays Shirley in this, who's, uh, you know, Ruth Maidley is, is in a wheelchair. There's deliberate attempts to kind of represent not just to have a person in a wheelchair but to show things that we haven't seen on screen before you know there's a scene in the first episode where she crosses her leg which a lot of wheelchair users found like massive because you don't tend to see wheelchair users that still have you know limited use of their legs generally speaking a wheelchair user on tv is like is almost always like non-perambulatory is that the word so as well as there being like stuff you can criticize a lot of people celebrate this stuff as well yeah, I mean, I'm I'm very interested to see kind of how the new the new season pans out. What should we talk about with the next two episodes? Because I feel like episode two is just like a pure acting fun times episode. Because it's this combination of horror in like a family friendly way. Because there's these really like it's really disturbing 
visuals in a way that's still suitable for kids, which is like quite a fine needle to thread because you've got basically like the Doctor and Donna on this ship and they encounter these entities that are able to emulate them, but they're not getting the bodies quite right. So they've got these like really fucked up proportions and stuff. And it's just, it's performed and kind of articulated in such an entertaining and gross way. That's like the bulk of the episode. And there's also this sort of like ticking clock mystery that culminates in them, you know, managing to escape. But it's also one of those stories where they don't have access to the TARDIS, so they're trapped. It's a very simple story in a lot of ways. One of the things that was interesting about this episode was they released very, very little information about it in advance, kind of because it's so easy to spoil it. Yeah, like, as soon as you know the premise, you're like, I've been spoiled. (laughs) Yeah, not even the premise, right? Even if you know the cast. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Tennant and Tate play these entities. And there are only three other actors in the whole thing. Two have ca- have cameos at the start. One has a cameo at the end. And the rest of it is just Tennant and Tate for the full hour. The cameo at the start is so funny because like, I think this is because of the three episodes, there was no history episode because obviously Doctor Who is kind of, you know, they do history episodes, they do future sci-fi episodes and they do ones on Earth. And like the first and the third are both in contemporary Earth. It felt like they were just doing a nod to like, we do usually like to meet historical figures. So they just have like this one scene where they bump into Isaac Newton. <laughs> and it like, they changed the timeline. So the word gravity is now canonically Mavity, which is like so fucking stupid. And I was like, you know what? I love you guys. I loved Isaac Newton. It was an absolutely cataclysmically stupid scene that really just filled me with such happiness as the introduction. And then they like lurch into body horror. <laughs> yeah. Something Doctor Who does really well is this is not a show that is sort of tightly... It's not a controlled show. Uh, it's not a conservative, careful show where every single line earns its place. It's kind of the opposite, right? It's like just incredibly indulgent, just gloriously indulgent. If it has a neat idea, it'll do it, no matter how stupid it is. I mean, what I just always find hilarious is the fact that this show is absolutely king of like weird throwaway nonsense and silly jokes and you know characters that are just completely ridiculous and are designed to be just like something that the showrunner or like the character creator found funny (laughs) and like weird musical cues and then the fan base are just like meticulously obsessively trying to hammer out what the official canon is and it's like even by the standards of long-running sci-fi franchises your plan here is doomed (laughs) <laughs> like yeah, you cannot yeah. make this coherent but godspeed to you <laughs> it's funny isn't it i saw a post that i that really made me laugh a few weeks ago which was like the three types of people who watch doctor who and there's like the casual viewer who refers to the character as doctor who and couldn't care less about law and then there's the the fan and the fan will insist actually the character is called the doctor it's not doctor who and cares deeply about the law and then there's the ascended fan who calls the character doctor who and doesn't care about law <laughs> i mean that is truly yeah i mean i i do actually sometimes find myself being like oh it's the new the new doctor who is played by shitty gatwa <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It's like, we know what you mean. (laughs) It's just funny, isn't it? And and it's because once you start enjoying that side of it, as much as anything, this show is in the tradition of Panto. It's really silly. It's all about sort of bright colours and dumb costumes and just the celebration of something so stupid. And the thing is, you know, it is fun to care about, like, the history of the Daleks and to, like, try and make it make sense in your head. But that's a game. It's play. It's not... 
hard and fast rules and you know when of I the lo- history of the Daleks after we watched these three Grace was like oh we have to watch the like one-off special that they did with like David Tennant's regeneration before these and I was like oh god it's gonna be so stupid like it's one of these five minute shorts and I'm like they're always terrible and it's actually hilarious so go seek that out it is an episode that is about the invention of the Dalek and it's just a comedy skit it's like a canonical comedy skit with David Tennant and it's a banger yeah they did it for children in need and that which is another thing which is like Doctor Who always intersects with other British institution. Children in Need is a big sort of charity fundraiser night that happens I mean, annually. Truly, the biggest dodged bullet was like during the David Tennant era, because like they often have these, like you say, crossovers and like celebrity guests. There is an episode where they have Kylie Minogue, which is wild. <laughs> but Russell T Davies was like, oh, we could do one with J.K. Rowling, where she comes in for part of the episode and has like a cameo role, which already is kind of implausible because she doesn't like to be on camera very much. And it was like, oh yeah, we could have her car- characters that she made would come to life and that'd be the episode. And, and David Tennant was just like, let's not do that. And obviously in those days, like that wasn't for any kind of personal or political reasons. He was just like, that sounds like a stupid idea for an episode, which is also correct. But now it's like, God, thank God we don't have the, the J.K. Yeah. Rowling episode of Doctor Who. Yeah. And, and, and it's not that there aren't cursed individuals oh God, God associated I mean, with this first show. First of all, it's like, you know, we've, we've got our little John Barman situation, but we've also like any long running show, you're going to have your cursed backstory and um you know <laughs> this is something i trust russell t davis with actually is there are people who used to contribute heavily to this show that the show has cut ties with because they you know became transphobic or whatnot you know i think davis is good as just not giving those people oxygen it's just no we are here to celebrate the stuff that's good which we is a, just... a low bar that i would say the majority of british television is not meeting so um <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to be clear, I, if, if you're not familiar with the UK media landscape, remain unfamiliar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't pick up that stone. <laughs> so, so going back to this episode, Wild Blue Yonder, the episode's called, yeah, the, the other part of it is you were often in, an, in a series of Doctor Who have one that's a little bit more character focused, that is less about the fireworks and more about just concentrating on the character and something that this episode does is you know it really zooms in on where the character of Donna is now and also picks up on the Doctor ultimately it is you know 14 years since Russell T Davis last wrote for this character he has been through two other versions of this show there's this kind of question hanging over David Tennant's return here which is that like is this technically the same guy right because canonically he is listed as the 14th doctor because he's the new regeneration after Jodie Whittaker's 13th doctor and the original David Tennant was the 10th doctor and it's like this return the way that Russell T Davies has chosen to frame it is sort of he's come back because he has unfinished emotional business to wrap up and kind of the regeneration into the new doctor with Shuti Gatwa is kind of allowing the doctor as a full entity to kind of process all that past trauma like we'll talk about that later when we talk about the regeneration itself but like there are definitely ways in which David Tennant's performance feels like it could be a new regeneration even though it's very explicitly interacting with the emotional arc that was left unfinished with Donna yeah you know it's not just the doctor that regenerates right usually when the doctor regenerates the whole show kind of transforms a little bit and that is doubly true when there's a new writer coming on board I think that's another thing people might find surprising if they're not familiar with Doctor Who, is that when Stephen Moffat takes over from Russell T. Davis, he is not supposed to keep the house style. 
it's like, no, do what you want. You know, it's your show now. And so, you know, kind of everything changes. You know, the look, the aesthetic of it changes. You know, he uses different directors. And Stephen Moffat kept Murray Gold writing the music from that Russell T. Davis had used. But even there... Basically, they have conversations about what the approach of the music will be. So even though it's the same composer, there will be a different way that music is used. It changes even more dramatically when Chris Chibnall comes in. You know, he does go for a new composer. He goes for a radically different style and approach. So it's almost truer to say, I'm stealing the observation of my friend's daughter here, actually, who said that... There isn't one TV show called Doctor Who. There are somewhere between six and 12 different TV shows, all of which happen to be called Doctor Who, but are different takes on the thing. I mean, it's very much like when new creative teams take over a long-running superhero comic, you know? Like, there's been loads of distinctive runs of Superman by different artists and writers. Yeah, that's it. And Superman comics in the 60s, there's an expectation of sort of matching the house style and kind of smoothing over those differences. Whereas now we celebrate those differences. We like it when there's a new creative team because it will look and feel different. Therefore, there's always a bit of anxiety about, well, what is being kept from these previous eras? And this hasn't happened before where a previous you know, a previous showrunner has returned. There are a couple of examples. You know, there's like, in 1980, Barry Lett, who'd been a producer in the 70s, comes back kind of to oversee the show to a certain extent. But even then, that's a fairly backseat role. This is a really new territory for Doctor Who to have an old showrunner take over. So the fear was, and, and, and actually in some cases, some people wanted him to do this. Some people wanted him to ignore the Chibnall and Moffat eras and wipe the slate clean and just go back to basics. So one of the things this episode is doing is sort of assuring us that that isn't going to happen. No, no, everything the Doctor has been through still happened. That's still important. This is a show with forward momentum. It, you know, we're not here to make it smaller or to reduce it. I mean, also, the idea that people were like, oh, he needs to, like, erase all the bad stuff from Stephen Moffat and Jodie Whittaker. It's like, even though I don't even like some of that stuff, that's stupid. And also, you do understand that he's, like, friends with these guys. They probably yeah. text every day. I don't like Stephen Moffat very much, but clearly they have a cordial professional relationship at the least. And it would be wildly rude and probably not permissible by the BBC to just be like, forget it all. Let's go back to the original. Like, that would be such an egomaniac move. <laughs> yeah, that's it. And and also just not how Doctor Who has ever worked. No. You know, Do- Doctor Who is all about if you want to do something new with Doctor Who, just do it. You don't need to look back. You don't need to like retcon things. And they have full creative control of like what they call back to. Because obviously if it's something in the past few seasons, there is an expectation that it's gonna have a long-running emotional effect on the Doctor now, more so than it would have done like in a 1970s episode where there was less kind of emotional continuity. But now it's like, you know, David Tennant's Doctor here is really shaped by the fact that he has all this lingering trauma and like can't handle the jet-setting life that he had when he was a young 10th Doctor Who. But um, in The Giggle, which is the third of these three episodes, I think we should discuss now, it is hinging on an incredibly obscure vintage Doctor Who reference and features a companion who I literally had never heard of before. I'd heard of the <laughs> actress, Bonnie Langford, but I had no fucking clue who this woman was. And I was like, who's Mel? Like, who is this? Like, I mean, it's like, I know that she is a former companion because that's how they've introduced her. And then my friends I was watching it with were like, yeah, she wasn't a very good one. And I was Googling her being like, okay, well, I guess this is the 
the context. She had kind of a silly send-off, but I was like, there's not really any reason for her to be in this episode at all, but cheers to all of the nerds slash older viewers who are happy to see Bonnie Langford back. I will not complain. But yeah, the, the main villain is this guy, the toy maker, who is kind of, this is definitely the Joker, but better to me, but he's taking the supervillain role that's often taken by the master, and he is this guy from... I mean, I'm sure you can explain more as an expert. <laughs> so let's address Mel and the toy maker at once. Sometimes Doctor Who will bring back an old monster or old character because they're incredibly famous and popular. So that's what happened with the Daleks. That is actually what's happening with Donna Noble here. Why is Donna back? Because she's one of the most famous and beloved companions. But sometimes you bring stuff back just because it's good. Not because it's famous, but because it's good. Bonnie Langford is back because Russell T. Davis loves Bonnie Langford. (laughs) (laughs) And like, if you can have Bonnie Langford in an episode, why wouldn't you? Bonnie Langford came back for a small cameo role in the final Jodie Whittaker episode, as did Kate Stewart, the head of UNIT, this military organisation. And at the end of Jodie Whittaker's era, we find this scene where it turns out the companions have formed like a support group, essentially, where that, you know, once they've stopped traveling with the doctor, they meet up to bond over their shared experiences. And in that, Bonnie Langford comes back for the first time since the 80s, just for that one scene. And Kate Stewart has a line where she says, well, look, I run this organisation that fights alien invasions when the Doctor isn't around. I could use a lot of your skill sets if anyone wants a job. So, like, it feels a bit like that's what's happened here, basically, is Mel therefore gets given a job. And it doesn't matter if you haven't seen that Chibnall episode. It doesn't matter if you don't know Mel, because none of it's important. You know, what matters is how brilliant to have Bonnie Langford, just for for the joy of it. The same with the Celestial Toymaker. So originally, the idea of this episode was that it would be about an evil puppet come to life. And as he wrote the script, Davis realised... Actually, I don't know how scary that would be for an entire special to have, like, Gemma Redgrave shooting at the little two-foot marionette. So maybe we need a proper villain, in which case, okay, a puppet master, and that's how he arrives at the Toy Maker. The Toy Maker is from 1966. He has not returned since. There were plans for him to return in the mid-80s, but that episode was cancelled because of behind-the-scenes troubles. So, really, we haven't seen this villain on screen in Doctor Who in 57 years. So, he's not back because he's popular and famous. He's back because, well... Why invent a new Puppet Master character when you can just, like, use this old villain, even if the villain is quite obscure? Very few people will have seen the original story because there are four episodes in the serial and three of them are missing from the archive. The BBC did not. It's the deepest of deep cuts. But, I mean, I loved this character. This is just just a really hilarious and fun one-note villain that is just allowing Neil Patrick Harris to chew the scenery in a way that... He is very good at. I mean, the introductory premise of this episode is definitely stupid from a kind of commentary standpoint because, you know, Donna and the Doctor return to Earth and the world's gone mad. Everyone is acting really erratically and they're acting by their worst impulses and they're all convinced they're right. And this is clearly a very kind of ham-fisted commentary on like modern political discourse and like internet bullying and stuff but they like barely touch upon this because what actually is important about this episode is the fact that the toy maker is the culprit behind this and um he is casting a dastardly trap 
to catch the doctor to make him like play a little game with him to see who's the best and who's the winner and what have you. But like the episode begins with this delightfully ridiculous little historical scene in 1920s Soho where the inventor of the television sends his personal assistant to buy a spooky little puppet doll from this local toy shop which is run by the toy maker who is putting on an over-the-top fake German accent for whatever reason because he's the joker and this doll becomes the doll that was like the first thing that was transmitted on television in 1925 and then in the present day we discover that this has kind of seeded a toxic message into all of television across the world which is another one of your like classic Doctor Who things. I was really expecting to see this thing flash up on our screen. I was like waiting for that to happen because it's the kind of silly little thing that they love to do. And I was a little bit disappointed we didn't get Stooky Bill the doll attacking us through the screen or whatever. But that is like being dealt with by unit, which is basically Doctor Who's version of S.H.I.E.L.D. from the Marvel franchise, who, as I said, I'm somewhat underwhelmed by. Uh, In this episode, they've set them up in what is very clearly a ripoff of Avengers Terror from the earlier Avengers movies. (laughs) Um, So there's a lot of scenes with... Kate Lethbridge-Stewart, who's like the boss, and then Mel and Donna and the doctor hanging out there. And then the uh, the toy maker rolls up and does like a dance routine, which is something we've also seen with the master on a couple of occasions and one other villain. And I was just like, you know what? It's an oldie but a goodie. It's very entertaining. I love it when they do a dance routine, which in this case was to Spice Up Your Life by the Spice Girls. Yeah, music is incredibly important in Doctor Who in general, and especially in Russell T. Davis's. It's also really funny, the Doctor Who Unleashed episode for this, Neil Patrick Harris is is asked about it. He had never heard this song. (laughs) And he says, everyone in this country seems to know it. It it seems like it's happy birthday here. (laughs) So he set the song as his alarm to wake him up in the morning uh, so that he could learn it. (laughs) This ridiculous song. I I love these sequences. And again, we're back to like Doctor Who being playful and indulgent and also brutal. You know, the fact that people get killed in this really horrific, but also like bizarre fantasy way during the dance. Yeah, they got like blown up into like a bunch of playing cards or like rose petals or something. I mean, this is such a perfect role for Neil Patrick Harris, who is both a very good and underrecognized dramatic actor and primarily known for broad comedy, which is basically what this is. And also just has this undeniable air of dickishness that is perfect for playing a stupid supervillain role. Because it's like, we know this guy's kind of a douche. And it's been used in other ways and other things, like his big sitcom role where his main personality trait is that he's a douche. But in this, it's like, you've got it right. He's very fun. And he is the person who precipitates the regeneration sequence at the end, which I think we should we should cap off this episode by talking about that. Because yes, he shoots David Tennant's doctor. And we assume that this means that David Tennant will then die, which would be very sad because he's already died once. And it's like, well, he's not fully concluded his emotional arc here. So instead what happens is he bigenerates, which is something they plucked out of their hat to explain why we're going to have simultaneously David Tennant's doctor and Shuti Gatwa's doctor. And um, they also split apart so they each get half of their outfits. So Shuti Gatwa's first scenes all take place with him wearing his (laughs) underwear and a shirt, which is just very delightful and fun. And he is, from the first millisecond he's on screen, I was just so thrilled. Like, obviously I've been enjoying David Tennant. I have nostalgia for that season, but I'm just so excited to see more of this guy because he's just got such kind of screen presence and charisma and seems like he's already got this very distinctive persona. Like, obviously, all of the new Doctors always immediately make a really good impact. Like, the thing that this show is incredible at, even when 
sometimes it has like shakier points is like they always cement the new doctor's personality very effectively in the first few scenes and it just like I was like he's doing great already and there's just this ridiculous scene the two doctors team up to defeat the toy maker by challenging him to a game of catch and I was enjoying the hell out of this from an acting and direction perspective because they have really made sure that each of these three men have a very distinctive physicality when miming catching a ball on like a green screen soundstage and I was like this is the kind of final battle sequence I can get behind (laughs) yeah yeah it's really great the casting of the doctor is such an important thing to get right and yeah we've never seen an actor quite like Shuti Gatwa in the role so it's so exciting to see just a little glimpse of what this show might be like with him in the lead full time. Is he the youngest or was Tennant younger? No. Tennant was actually older. Okay. But but Gatwa is older than both Matt Smith and Peter Davison were. I always forget Matt Smith. Yeah. Truly a non-entity to me. <laughs> <laughs> the Doctor is usually is someone in their mid-30s typically, but... Gatwa feels younger, I think, maybe partly because we associate him with sex education, where he plays a teenage boy. Uh, you know, he seems very young, right? Like, he can he can play younger. And also, like, the way they've styled him and the way that he's styled in public appearances is, like, much cooler and more youthful. Yes, yeah. yeah. You know, one of the things I'm excited about is, with there being more money, usually the Doctor has one outfit that they wear in every episode, because, you know, that's that's a that's a money thing. Whereas with more money, like, he seems to be dressed differently in every episode, and so I'm hyped for your thoughts in particular on the fashions. I'm looking forward to it. Actually, it would be very cool if I get to write about this costume, so maybe I should figure out if I can write about that in some capacity. Mm. But yeah, the way this regeneration pans out is that it's kind of treated as like although theoretically you could have two doctors adventuring at the same time they're like actually David Tennant's doctor you're gonna go retire now you're gonna do the mental health work to get yourself back on track instead of just being like exhausted and traumatized as you have been for ages and we know that's going to work because your future regeneration technically speaking is clearly in a much better space emotionally because <laughs> yeah. Judy was all like okay let's get down to business really upbeat all this kind of stuff so David Tennant's doctor moves in with John Noble and her family that's his happy ending and like they do kind of talk about at the end like he has this little dinner party with them and they're kind of joking about him taking Rose her daughter travel to the moon or Mars or whatever so it's like it's not like they're completely staying there in this like very domestic setting he is getting therapy he's retiring and I quite liked that because it feels like it would be both repetitive and too depressing to kill the character off again I do also agree with there has been a few critiques I've seen where it's like the fact that you have David Tennant still alive it's sort of hanging over the new guy a bit because it feels like in other franchises that basically guarantees that it means you're going to have simultaneous spin-offs I don't particularly think that's going to happen. I hope it's not going to happen because I do not want it to be like, here's David Tennant as like the old guard and then like competing for attention with the new guy. That is the sort of thing that would happen with Disney. It's definitely not the sort of thing that would happen with Doctor Who on the BBC traditionally. But that does very much overlap with something we've seen a lot, particularly in superhero franchises, where you have this big name character like Iron Man or Captain America who is historically a white man. And then they are replaced in the comics 
and sometimes in the movies by a woman or a person of color or like another minority that the publisher is wanting to represent more by giving them the uh, all the attention of this big brand instead of just being like, here's a new character. You're like, this character is now canonically Captain America. But then of course, because it's superhero comics, the original guy comes back and then these two characters are competing for space. And it's always kind of a toss up whether the new character still gets that attention uh, that they deserve or if it ends up being this sort of lip service to inclusivity that ends up just going back to the original brand which is something that's been like somewhat successful with some characters like obviously um miles peter parker's replacement incredibly successful people fucking love miles morales people love kamala khan but like with this i do think like if you have this threat of having david tennant back as the more famous white guy it's like no you should be putting the entire spotlight on shuti gatwa and also, like, we've seen the old guy already. Like, we've, we've seen him. He's done. Let him go and hang out in Don and Noble's garden, is my opinion. So I have lots of thoughts on this, and some of them are based on rumours. I'll flag up which ones when I get there. So I think the big thing is, yeah, Davis has talked about not wanting to do yet another sad regeneration. You know, we've seen so many sad regenerations. And then Jodie Whittaker's is kind of like, the least sad in a way, in that she, you know, of the modern doctors, is the one most happy to go... You know, like, her final words are, tag, you're it. You know, she goes with this, like, sense of excitement of she is happy to let go of being the Doctor and and to pass it forward. But these have become repetitive. So doing a happy one, you know, feels like it opens things up a little bit more. So thought one is I think that works for me very well. I mean, I think it's a really good conclusion for the scenario which they've created, which is a sort of pocket subplot where you suddenly have David Tennant back. Like, I think this is a good conclusion. Yes, absolutely. I think the second thing is, ultimately, old doctors stick around anyway. You know, they don't get given spin-offs, and generally, I think they shouldn't. Or if they are, you know, it should be like a minor thing. You know, the BBC also produced a series called Tales from the TARDIS, where they got a bunch of old doctors and companions back to record new footage. As in old, old, like 70 old, years old. Yeah. <laughs> Peter Davison, Sylvester McCoy, and Colin Baker, the three doctors in the 80s. And... This isn't even the first time David Tennant has come back. You know, he was back for the for the 50th anniversary alongside Matt Smith, who'd replaced him. So, you know, whenever the show wants to bring back old Doctors, it will. What this does is it means you, you no longer need a line to cover why they look older. And that's something that Davis talks about in the commentary for this episode, is that they had to jump through hoops in order to explain why David Tennant could come back in these stories. And he's like, why can't you just do a one-off episode with Sylvester McCoy and go, look, he's just back? Because that is what most British television would do. And I take your point that if you look at superhero comics, there's a lesson to be learned from history there. You know, the other paradigm we can look at this through is like, when Death in Paradise, the crime procedural, replaces its lead with a new detective, it doesn't feel the need to kill off the old one. Open brackets, it did do that once. Uh, close brackets. But usually what happens is, like, the old guy goes off into the sunset, a new person comes in. Death in Paradise at the minute has a spin-off called Beyond Paradise, which is a, a show starring... Chris Marshall, who is like the best loved detective from Death in Paradise. You know, no one thinks that undermines Ralph Little, who's the lead in Death in Paradise right now. So I think part of it is by is making it a bit more normal as television and going, anything you can do to stop Doctor Who being too sci-fi, too kind of niche and cult and to be more like, look, the audience likes it when an old Doctor comes back, if there's a mechanism that allows that. And 
that is something David says in the in the commentary as well. Is he likes the idea that it's not just David Tennant who gets to live on. Yeah, I mean, it's like when the next person takes over, Gatwa can also come back. Yes. And that it's also resurrected all the old ones as well. So if you want to do a Jodie Whittaker miniseries, you can. So here's the rumour, which I heard this long enough ago that I find this fairly credible, which is that because the BBC wanted to find a streaming platform to partner with, even before Davis was coming back, even before Tennant was coming back, that was in the conversation, you know, back when Chibnall was in charge. They always wanted the next step to be going global, more money, more presence. One of the things that they talked about was how to handle the rights. Because if you give, you know, Disney the rights to your character, you want a version of your character that you can protect, like that that you can exploit, you know, in terms of IP, in terms of merchandising or whatever. Uh, If you want to be able to make your own version of the character, you look at what happens with Sony and Spider-Man. If you want someone to exploit your IP for you, but you want to keep it to yourself as well. So the talk was that the plan was to reboot, basically do a hard reboot and go, basically, the end would be Jodie Whittaker or whoever just walking into the sunset, not regenerating. And then the next season is like an origin style story. No! Yeah! (laughs) Terrible! And that, you know, that would give them the scope to, like, remake classic stories, but with a new I also, doctor. I mean, that all sounds utterly repulsive and so yeah. stupid, and people would be so pissed off. But it's also, like, stuff like the Mel cameo in this third episode, it just hammers home the point that the idea that you have to know everything beforehand is so condescending. Small children watch this show and have historically watched this show forever. And it's fine if they don't understand stuff. So it should be fine if adults don't understand stuff. When people are like, oh, you have to watch like all these movies to understand what's going on here. It's like, well, I I actually can understand what's happened in the latest Marvel film. And it's bad. (laughs) You're just trying to make me watch more bad spinoffs to fully appreciate this story that also isn't good. Whereas these episodes, while not like 100% flawless or politically clued in, are still very enjoyable and completely easy to digest and like the jokes land and all this stuff. And occasionally I'll be like, oh, I can tell there's a reference here that's for someone with an encyclopedic knowledge of something that happened in 1970. And that doesn't matter to me. Have fun with that, whoever you are. Stefan, probably. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's it. It's because this regeneration mechanism exists. And there's lots of ways they've tackled this. You know, the Doctor's memory isn't flawless. And the Doctor is the only character who continues because we're always going to get new companions, new original fresh characters from scratch. You know, if you want the sense of a reboot, you can just introduce a new companion. And that gives you a fresh way into it. Yeah, I'm really curious about the new companion because I know literally nothing about her. I know that she's blonde. That is the (laughs) beginning and the end of my knowledge. So by the time this episode's out, I'll have met her in the Christmas special, presumably. Millie Gibson, yeah. Yeah, So she, I, I know that she's very, people loved her in Coronation Street and she was given basically loads of material. She was like a child actor in that or a teenage actor, at least. And yeah, pe- people rate her very highly, so I'm hyped to see her. I think this might be our most British episode to date. <laughs> of Overinvested. Yeah. Has there ever been an episode of, of Overinvested that mentions soap <laughs> no. opera Coronation Street? <laughs> 
I don't think that came up in your coverage of the lighthouse. <laughs> so yeah, so the, so the rumor is that when Davis comes back, because Davis is was anti reboot. You know, he could have rebooted it when he brought it back yeah, in two thousand five. I mean, because he has a brain. He's like, yeah. no, nobody wants this, and yeah. I don't want a scenario where it's like, oh, we should do a modern remake of this episode from like nineteen seventy. It's like, no, we don't need to do this. You can reference it in the same way that modern Star Trek will do a riff on something from nineteen sixty eight. But if you look at it through that lens, the introduction of Shutigatwa does feel like this is the closest you can get to reboot while still having it be like a continuous long-running thing. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think they have actually used the word reboot in the marketing. Like, it does seem like a clean break kind of situation. Yeah. Which I'm fine with. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, Doctor Who should always be a soft reboot in the sense of being like, this is a new thing. But what we have is like, for the first time, we have an unencumbered Doctor. In the modern era, the Doctor has usually been someone weighed down by their own past. And so to have someone who's like consciously, no, I'm going to have a good time. I'm healthy. Don't worry about me. Is like, it, it is kind of a new direction and makes it feel like a jumping on point. Another key thing is that Disney did not come on board as a partner until these three specials were already in the can. So the Gatwa era is actually the era that Disney bought into. So even though these specials have gone up on Disney Plus worldwide, the marketing push will come when yeah. Gatwa. It's comes. also very hard for me to imagine Disney had had any sort of meaningful input during the earlier development stages the idea of disney being like yeah we want a gay doctor who it just wouldn't happen because it's such a conservative and homophobic organization and i can see where they get to the point where they're like this show already has like a very big kind of queer history behind it and like we were confident the showrunner and we'll fund this now i think there's kind of like a difference between those two versions of like input and funding well, it's interesting that what Davis has said is that actually all of the Disney input has been really good. Yeah, of course he fucking says that. They're paying him. <laughs> yeah, but... Come but, on. <laughs> no, but the thing is, though, like, Davis is interesting because when there's dark stuff, he just doesn't mention it. He is not someone who lies except by omission. So I'm inclined to think that that is true. I'm not saying that there isn't I am highly sceptical as someone who has been covering Disney franchises in depth for the past decade. <laughs> yeah, but you're covering franchises that are, like, extremely expensive. Yeah. Ultimately, Doctor Who's fairly low risk for... Even though, by British standards, this is a very expensive version of this show. You know, one of these specials costs as much as an entire season of David Tennant used to. However, by Disney standards, it's pocket money. It's very cheap. How much did these episodes cost? So five million per episode is what I heard. Yeah. So, you know, that's more than twice what a Jodie Whittaker episode cost, which itself was more than twice what Capaldi yeah. cost. And there's you plenty know. of American shows that are dropping like 10 million an episode yeah. routinely. And, you know, but Disney isn't providing all of that money either. You know, the BBC is chipping in a big chunk of that. I'm not saying Disney is hands off because actually it's quite a nice company. Of course not. But I'm saying... I totally believe that they're that not... it's pocket change. <laughs> yeah. They're not cracking the whip because they don't need to. On that note, I think we should wrap up this episode. Do you have anything else to add? I love this show. I'm so glad it's, <laughs> it's so on people's radar again. And I look forward to Christmas and Shutigatwa very much. Yeah, I, w- I wonder how this episode's going to land after the Christmas special is already out there Um, imagine it's terrible (laughs) yeah we're recording this on the 19th of december i mean i would be shocked if the christmas special was actively terrible because i think shooting gatwa is like already five stars but historically christmas episodes have been 
very corny and often bad so we'll see my family will be tuning in for the first time in like maybe a decade i don't know oh. definitely since like before the uh Whitaker era um, my brother was like we're not watching this anymore uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i think in general we're both very hyped i hope you all enjoyed this episode in early january claire and i will be back for the annual best films of the year 2023 in this case um, where we will both be going back down our top 10 list. Last year, you can still go back to with me and Morgan, where we talked about last year's top 10 films each. This is usually our most popular episode of the year. So um, go check that out when it comes in early January. I still don't know exactly what I'm going to put on my list. I definitely don't know what Claire is going to put on her list, but hopefully it will be an interesting selection. And I always find it promising that people love these episodes when they are arriving often a full month after other people have compiled their best of the year lists because I see plenty of people publishing theirs on like the 10th of December and I'm like you've not finished the year yet I'm still sending out squeaker <laughs> emails begging to see some Italian film that's now here <laughs> but yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to recording that in early January I'm also looking forward to that because that is also my favourite episode of the year of this podcast. Oh, really? I did not yeah. know that. Yeah, I love it. Because I'm also like, I don't know how many of those movies you watch because we have quite None. different film tastes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get to find out about loads of stuff I haven't seen. It's perfect. <laughs> All right. As always, you can find the show notes for this on overinvestedpodcast.com. You can find us on patreon.com forward slash overinvested, where you can make requests for episodes recorded by Stefan and I or Claire and I, like our most recent episode, which was on The Cutting Edge, the beloved uh, figure skating and ice hockey rom-com. That was a request. Um, also, obviously, Morgan and I are still doing episodes there for Patreon subscribers. So you can, you know, go and, go and pay for more content there. You can find us on Tumblr at Overinvested Podcast, on Twitter at Overinvested Pod, more or less. I mean, we're not really on there. And you can find me on Tumblr at Hello Taylor, on Blue Sky at Gavia, and on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor, where I log all of my films. Stefan, where can we find you and do you have any stand-up shows to advertise? Oh, well, no, not yet, actually. No stand-up, but um, come and see me when I do the Edinburgh Festival, which I no doubt will. Uh, find me on Twitter for now at Stalin, S-T-A-L-U-N, uh, for as long as that website continues to exist. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.